Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I will be your host for this episode. And this episode was a very important episode for me to cover. It ties into the Richard Jewell episode by verifying what the mayor of Atlanta had said about hosting the 1996 Olympics. While there is still room for improvement, the American South has made some major strides in civil rights, and it's because of brave people like the victims we will talk about today that these advancements have been made. Before we get into the episode, let's talk about the business. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. If you'd like to email the host directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon or PayPal. Links to make donations are on the website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. Any donation level helps, and it'll help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast, a thank-you message from the host, and some cool True Blue Crime merch. For no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much. Without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. Less than 70 years ago, in 1955, a 15-year-old black teenager named Emmett Till traveled from Chicago, Illinois to Money, Mississippi to visit relatives during the summer months. Having been raised in Chicago, he was unaware of the true level of danger the South presented to people of color. While doing an errand run to a small grocery store, Emmett came across a white woman named Carolyn Bryant. It was originally reported that Emmett whistled at Carolyn, but the story soon was exaggerated to the point where Emmett had forced himself upon the woman and touched her inappropriately. After Carolyn's husband, Roy, heard the false story, he recruited his half-brother, J.W., and the two located Emmett. They beat the teenager before torturing him and then shooting him in the head and tossing him into a river. While this terrible tale was just one of many murders committed by racists against people of color, Emmett's mother, Mamie, decided to take a stand. She had a glass-topped casket made for her son's funeral, and when his beaten and mutilated body was displayed at the funeral In Chicago, thousands of people bore witness to the horrors of racism and segregation in the United States. Mamie Till is credited with motivating several future civil rights activists via her bravery. Back in Mississippi, the two monsters accused of this murder were put on trial and acquitted of all crimes against Emmett Till by an all-white jury. Several northern journalists seized on the opportunity to highlight the plague of white supremacy in the South, and there was public outcry from much of the nation. Rosa Parks, who famously refused to give up her seat on a public bus for a white person, and was subsequently arrested, would later say that Mamie Till's bravery was a driving factor in taking a stand against inequality. Rosa Parks' arrest led to a year-long boycott of the public transit by people of color in Montgomery, Alabama, that crippled the revenue for the bus service and forced the government to repeal the ordinance that Rosa Parks had been arrested under. The fire that was the civil rights movement was spreading throughout America, Events such as the 1961 Freedom Rides and the 1963 March on Washington saw hundreds of thousands of civil rights activists making their voices heard. Unfortunately, those campaigning for change were under constant threat. Buses used for the Freedom Rides were firebombed, leaders were assassinated, and in 1964 in Mississippi, the cost of ultimate change would be three young lives. This is the true case of Mississippi burning. And before I get into the main story, it's it's not often that I need to really touch on these introductions. 
Uh, this is actually my second time recording this episode. I, I tried to record it under a little bit of a time crunch between getting my boys to different sports events, and I wasn't happy with the final product, so I'm actually doing a complete re-record of this episode just because, it's a, as I mentioned, it's a really important episode for me to cover appropriately and 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 to cover it well. And again, normally I don't break down these introductions they kind of speak for themselves, but as I've said many times before, I always try to get people into the time period where the crime is going to occur. And I wasn't alive in the 1960s, despite what my kids might believe, to, to bear witness, or the 1950s to bear witness to what was going on in the country at the time. But after researching this episode, I really feel like I needed to, to get the listeners, get you guys to put yourselves in the Deep South in this time frame, the, the late 50s, early 60s, during the heart of the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, there's going to be some things that occur during this episode that are just gut-wrenching, aggravating. I mean, I was angry several times while researching this, just the, the blatant lack of justice blatant lack of humanity that that's going to occur during this episode and i am going to refer to some of the suspects as men there's a couple times i might refer to some of these people using some human descriptors and and i thought about trying to come up with every different synonym i could for the term monster using stuff such as beast and and different things to describe the people involved in this crime but I, I felt it would just be easier to put a disclaimer at the very beginning and say, when I refer to these people as as men or a man or a thing, I'm not giving them credit for being a human being because they, they lack the evolutionary progress in my mind at this point to be referred to as being humans. So just again, keep that in mind when I'm referring to these people. I'm not giving them credit for being human uh, because I, I don't see them that way after, after what they did in this, in this episode. And, and that being said, it, I think it was important to cover Emmett Till's case. It was a case that I had not heard of, and uh, there w- probably was enough there to do a real short episode if I wanted to, but I really just wanted to get the idea out there that this is what people of color and in this case people who support blacks in the south during the 1950s and this is what they were facing this this absolutely overt racism segregation that was going on and i think it was important to start with one of the most influential cases with emmett till and how that affected rosa parks how rosa parks stance affected the civil rights movement as a whole and so as we get into in this case 1964 in mississippi it's been almost 10 years of of struggle but with progress thanks to these brave people so again i just want to put people back in this time period i think if you try to view it from true crime today it's going to be very difficult because it's going to be almost so alien to what we're used to uh, today and now granted, I will say that having been born and raised in the North, it's obviously I, I have different experiences when it comes to 
viewing racism things like segregation than somebody who was born at the same time as as me and raised in the south and obviously as a a white male i'm going to be seeing things differently than than somebody who is a person of color but i'm going to do my best to just put out the facts that are out there and break down things when i need to break them down discuss it further because there's a lot of of different source material on this case Uh, there is a 19 88, I want to say, movie uh, named Mississippi Burning. It's loosely based on this story. And again, Hollywood likes to take those creative, dramatic leniencies when they cover some of these true stories. And when it comes to true crime, I I lean more towards the true side of things. So based on all my research, this is going to be the true case of Mississippi Burning. The summer of 1964 is known in the history of the civil rights movement as the Freedom Summer. The Congress of Racial Equality, known as CORE, had been founded in 1942 with the mission of bringing equality to all people in America regardless of their race. CORE operated as an organization with leadership roles and specific missions to meet their agenda. Their main focus was battling the well-known Jim Crow laws that were designed to disenfranchise people of color and prevent them from voting. CORE had several small organizations that operated under its guidance to include the Council of Federated Organizations, known as COFO. It was formed in 1961 and focused on the state of Mississippi in regards to creating more opportunity for people of color to include voting. In 1964, CORE and COFO worked together to establish the Freedom Summer as a targeted time for community organizers and activists to operate within the state of Mississippi and encourage voters to register to vote. And I'm actually going to be referring to the organizations combined as CORE from here on out. It's just easier that way. Just know that both of these organizations are working together under kind of the umbrella of CORE. Again, so it's just easier not to have to refer to CORE and COFO throughout this entire rest of this episode, but CORE is just the bigger organization. COFO is just the smaller organization operating just in Mississippi. 1964 was a presidential election year, and Lyndon Bain Johnson had promised to continue JFK's support of equality and civil rights if he was elected. Not only was the presidential election important, LBJ needed enough votes in the Senate and the House to pass legislation helpful to the civil rights movement. CORE had recruited civil rights-minded individuals from colleges around the country to serve as community organizers and motivators that could speak at black places of worship and gathering about the importance of registering to vote in order to change the future. This was not well received by many of the racist and bigoted members of the state of Mississippi, including many members of law enforcement. They saw the activists as invaders and troublemakers, and in many cases, they committed illegal acts such as false arrests, harassment, and in the worst cases, murder in order to try and combat their efforts. While parts of the federal government had been supportive of the civil rights movement to include using federalized National Guard troops to force integration of schools and protect rallies, small localized events were prime hunting grounds for state and local law enforcement and organizations such as the Ku Klux Klan. So basically to break this all down, back in 1964, you have CORE and COFO, but uh, CORE has recruited all across the United States. They, they go to colleges, they put on presentations about 
progress within the civil rights movement and they're basically these recruiting style talks they are trying to energize the these college students that tend to be a little more open-minded when it comes to the topics of things like integration and anti-racism a lot of the times these are colleges in the north where again uh, these students haven't necessarily been exposed to the levels of racism and segregation that's occurring in the south and the idea is is that you can bring down these college students and there there are a lot of middle class and upper middle class students that will come down and it kind of serves two purposes one is you get a little bit safer passage through the south when you're a middle class to upper middle class white male you're not as likely to get targeted by law enforcement and secondly you've got a you've got the power to then come back after this summer and tell people what you saw what you learned and and kind of spread that word and 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 keep the fire of the civil rights movement going in places where it's not so obvious that change needs to occur because they're not seeing it meanwhile you've got the Ku Klux Klan and they're deeply embedded into law enforcement uh, politics everything in the south and they see these college kids coming down into their state to try to change the way things have operated for centuries in Mississippi as these foreign invaders so it's it's basically war and and I think it was the one of the leaders of the Ku Klux Klan basically put it that way saying these guys are invading our state and this this is going to be a war this summer and a three-man team of activists with CORE were traveling through the South when they were assigned to speak at a black church that had been burned by members of the Klan. The men were 21-year-old James Cheney, 20-year-old Andrew Goodman, and 24-year-old Michael Schwerner. James Cheney was born in 1943 in Meridian, Mississippi. He grew up as a black child in the South during segregation and the birth of the Civil Rights Movement. He was suspended for a week during high school because he wore a paper badge bearing the NAACP organization name. This had been at a segregated high school, but the principal feared retaliation from the all-white school board and made the boys remove the badges and face the one-week suspension. So if you can imagine, you're being forced to go to a segregated school, which they were often severely underfunded, understaffed, overcrowded, and as a young black teen you see something like the NAACP as an organization that you could stand with and and, and is supposed to be supporting you and while you're at this school where everybody in the school is at least all the students are black you wear this badge just promoting an organization that's that's looking out for your well-being and you're suspended for a week because the principal fears further retaliation from this all-white school board and so this this school board can obviously cut further cut funding uh, and, and basically make the principal's life miserable and so even within members of their own group they can't display support for some an organization that's trying to help them so at age 18 james became involved in the civil rights movement and participated in the freedom rides of 1962 
1963, he took on a leadership role with CORE and began building relationships with churches in the area to support voter education classes. During the Freedom Summer of 1964, he continued those relationships and formed a friendship with Michael and Andrew, and James's job would be to convince black church leaders to support the two young white men from New York. Andrew Goodman was born in 1943 in New York City. He was raised in a Jewish family, and his mother was a civil rights activist. He began his own activist career at 14 when he traveled to Washington, D.C. to participate in the 1958 Youth March for Integrated Schools. In 1961, he arranged for Jackie Robinson to speak at his school about the importance of racial equality. In the spring of 1964, he attended a talk featuring two Mississippi civil rights activists, and they recruited many students to join them for the Freedom Summer in their state. He signed up, and after spring classes ended, he attended a training session in Oxford, Ohio, where he met Michael Schwerner and James Cheney. Michael Schwerner was born in 1939 in the Bronx, New York. He was also raised in a Jewish family, and he was known to protect other kids from bullies. He went off to college to become a veterinarian, but changed his major to sociology and eventually pursued a master's in social work. He spent his summers back in the Bronx, and in the early 60s, he led a local chapter of CORE on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. He was recruited for the Freedom Summer after his wife and him had done some prep work in Mississippi with James Cheney, Michael set off for Ohio where the two men met Andrew. After training in Ohio, the three men traveled back to Mississippi in mid-June of 1964. The plan was that they would stop in small communities and work with black leaders, usually in the churches, to set up these voter education schools and there they would teach people how to organize and fight back against the oppressive voter and segregation laws. And so the entire idea behind this Freedom Summer was the, the black people of Mississippi had been so disenfranchised for so long and had so many things working against them in terms of law enforcement and politicians and segregation and employment opportunities, housing opportunities. Everything was against them in Mississippi both pre and during this this time of, uh, with the civil rights fight. And nothing was going to change if the same people kept getting elected as sheriffs and judges and politicians. There was, there was nobody representing the people of color in Mississippi at the time. So one of the easiest ways to make change, and I say easy, it's I'm just saying that once you've succeeded at the process of getting people out to vote and understanding their right to vote, they can then turn up in large numbers and vote to put people in office that can change the laws, that can make life better for them. But they were so beaten down by decades and centuries of slavery into segregation and racism that they were afraid to stand up and take a stance and show up and vote and try to make change. So that's what the Freedom Summer was about, was getting word out to black leaders that could form these voter education schools and people could attend these voter education schools, learn how to register to vote, learn how to vote. It was a safety and numbers situation. And several churches in Mississippi, they were these centers for these, these community organization and 
voter education schools, and unfortunately several of them were targeted by members of the Ku Klux Klan or law enforcement or both because they were seen as obviously places that were going to promote change and change that was not beneficial to people like the Ku Klux Klan. So on June, June 21st, 1964, the men learned of an arson that occurred at Mount Zion Church, a location Michael and James had recently successfully turned into a center for community organization before they left for Ohio. So this is something where they had, back in, it was May or early June, they had met with the black leaders of this Mount Zion church. They had turned the church into a community organization area where people of color felt safe to gather and talk about civil rights and change and voting and all that kind of stuff. And while they were off in Ohio training up this group of recruits that had come from these northern colleges to include Andrew Goodman, this church was was burned down. And so on June 21st, the three guys, James, Michael, and Andrew, are going to leave Meridian together, which is where the, the base of operations for their part of core was, and they drove to Longdale, Mississippi, where the burned out church was located. And the three men were aware that after Cora left the town earlier that week, the parishioners had been stopped by local police and beaten with rifles by members of the Ku Klux Klan. Many of the members of the black community that were stopped that night and beaten would identify members of the Klan as the men who burned down the church. Michael and the other two wanted to learn more about the details of the crimes committed. And this really was a federal situation where Cora was supported by certain politi politicians at the federal level, they saw the, the need to have federal support for what was going on in states like Mississippi. And so CORE basically reported directly to some of the federal political organizations and stuff. And so they knew nothing would happen about this burned out church and these, these beaten down members of the community unless they investigated it and reported it back. So these three guys are going to go do that. They're going to go talk to the black leaders, they're going to talk to some of these parishioners, find out what happened, report these crimes, and try to you know continue to make a change. But CORE knew that these incidents were dangerous. Membership in the KKK had grown to over 10,000 during the summer of 1964, and members of the Klan consisted of police officers, judges, prosecutors, and politicians. The organizations had a plan in place and team leaders were supposed to report in at regular intervals to let their supervisors know they were okay. After visiting the charred remains of the church and speaking with some of the black victims of the hate crime, the trio set off for their home base of Meridian. They were stopped outside the town of Philadelphia for speeding in their known core station wagon. The fact that the vehicles used by these activists were known to the police made them easy targets for harassment and the arresting deputy, a man named Cecil Price, was a known member of the KKK. James, who had been driving, was arrested for speeding, and the other two were held for investigation. They were brought back to the local jail by Deputy Price, a deputy with Neshoba County. At the jail, they were told they would be held until they saw a justice of the peace, despite speeding being a payable fine with immediate release. So in most states, at least now and ever since I was a police officer, uh, something like speeding is what's considered a petty misdemeanor, meaning it's not even a jailable offense. 
Uh, now, other states may see it differently, and it, and it can depend on how fast you are going. Uh, in some states, you have automatic situations where if you're going double the speed limit, it's considered reckless driving, which is a misdemeanor and therefore a jailable offense. Uh, there's other states where if you're over 100 miles an hour when you're caught speeding, it's considered either reckless endangerment or something along those lines. Every state's going to see them differently. But in most cases, stuff such as speeding, any of these other petty misdemeanors, it's you can either pay a fine on the spot. Most cases, in most states, you just get a citation saying either pay this by by mail, pay it now, pay it electronically, or if you want to, you can show up for a, a traffic court date down the road and, and explain it to a judge why you're speeding or, or whatever it might be. But these are not quote-unquote jailable offenses. It's, it's not as if you've committed an actual crime. But again, we've talked about how corrupt the local law enforcement is. This deputy that arrests them is a member of the KKK. And this is all going to be part of a plan. Michael asked to make a phone call, likely to check in with CORE and tell them of their detention, but a phone call was denied. Now this is important because you will see a lot of times in movies and TV shows that prisoners demand their one phone call. That is a total farce. The only quote-unquote phone call that you have to be allowed to make is if you're in a situation where you're facing some type of legal decision making so an interview or an interrogation or in a case of a dwi deciding whether or not you're going to submit to testing there is a part where you have to be given access to a lawyer uh, to make a phone call to call your lawyer but there's no real situation where when you're put into detention there's a any type of a law or existing situation where you, the jail staff is required to allow you your quote-unquote one phone call. It's just something that works well and when people write it into scripts for movies or TV shows. But ultimately, in this case, again, Michael's asking to make this phone call because he wants to check in with CORE. And when Michael and the others missed their designated check-in time, supervisors with CORE began calling around to all the local jails to see if they'd been detained. A call from CORE to the Neshoba County Jail was recorded at 5.30 p.m., but the jailer's wife would initially deny receiving any calls asking about the three men. And we're going to see that the conspiracy to commit this crime is really deep. There are going to be a lot of members of the community, and in this case even the jailer's wife, that are in on it because the, the idea was never to let these guys go completely free. From the second that they were identified and stopped, this crime was, was in motion. And it would later be learned during the trial for the suspects that Deputy Price left the jail and drove to the home of a Baptist minister named Edgar Killen to tell him that they had three core workers, which were two white guys from New York, and one of them was an actual target for the KKK, and a black male in custody. A plan was made to round up a lynch mob and commit the murders. The plan even included a hiding place for the bodies. In this case, a KKK member had a cattle farm and an earthen dam on part of the farm that was large enough, according to him, to hold a hundred bodies. After the men had spent several hours in jail, Deputy Price returned and said the men could just pay their fine and then they needed to get out of the county. Michael paid the fine and the three men left and were never seen alive again. 
The men were reported missing by the Corps office, and this news was passed on to civil rights-friendly politicians in Washington. Lyndon Baines Johnson invited the families of Andrew and Michael to his office, but no invitation was sent to James's mother. LBJ ordered J. Edgar Hoover to send FBI agents to investigate, but at first, Hoover refused. When LBJ threatened to involve another high-ranking federal official, one that was seen as a rival to Hoover, he, Hoover relented, but assured the white people of Mississippi that the FBI would not be in the state to protect civil rights activists. Mississippi was the only state in the U.S. without an FBI office in 1964, so 15 agents from New Orleans were initially placed in Mississippi to work the case. Hundreds of military personnel, to include Navy divers, were sent as well to search the swamps, lakes, and waterways in the area, as it was common practice for KKK members to throw murdered people of color into water. The station wagon belonging to the men was found by Native Americans two days later. It had been parked in a ditch in an effort to hide it, and it had been set on fire to destroy evidence of the crime. The discovery of the vehicle prompted the arrival of over 150 FBI agents. It was clear that the local law enforcement was not to be trusted, and the investigation was run mainly from the federal level. Meanwhile, the case was gathering national attention. While many in the civil rights movement welcomed the spotlight, many also faced the reality that the only reason the case was getting highlighted was because two of the men were white northerners that appeared to have run into foul play while fighting racism in the South. Michael's wife Rita, also a core activist, flat out told reporters that James missing wasn't news because he was black. The outcry was only because of her husband and Andrew. Investigators searched the area around where the vehicle was found and the men's presumed path back to Meridian. During the month of July, eight bodies of missing black men were found that had gone missing in previous months and years, but none of them were James Cheney. Two of the bodies belonged to missing black college students that had been kidnapped, beaten, and were murdered in May of 1964. We'll cover that 43-year-old investigation into their case in a future episode. One of the other bodies was found still wearing a core t-shirt, and little to no information was made available about the five other bodies. In an act devoid of any class, the governor of Mississippi, a bigot with the name Paul Johnson, claimed at one point that the disappearance was a political hoax. He stated publicly that he thought the workers had been taken to Cuba to hide out, and the whole story was a stunt to gain support for the civil rights cause. Now, I will say in full fairness and disclosure, he would later claim that these statements were made to appease political high-ranking white supremacists, and he did act cooperate fully with LBJ and Hoover with the investigation and publicly supported future civil rights advancements. He would go on to fire several KKK members from state positions in order to clean out the highway patrol of members of the Klan. He took power in 1964 just before this incident and by the end of his term Mississippi was a much more moderate and there was a significant reduction in racial violence. So again, I'm not giving this guy any slack for what he said in the beginning. He, he came out and would later say his statements were what needed to be said politically at that moment. Now, we're talking about Mississippi in the early 60s. And so again, I'm not giving him any slack in terms of he, he shouldn't have said what he said. He, he said it to appease evil people. And that's something that 
he would have to live with the rest of his life. But I didn't want to just throw this guy completely under the bus because later in his, during his time as a governor, he did do some good things for the civil rights movement. So it's it's one of those things. I don't not that the good things that he did erased some of the idiotic things that he said and, and the decisions that he made, but it's not something where the guy was completely evil and, and completely against civil rights during his entire time as governor. He did make some progress. And again, I always want to just come out and be truthful to both sides of, of, of every story. And after coming up empty for six weeks, a tip from an anonymous source that was identified as Mr. X and, and we'll get into who Mr. X is here in a second, led FBI agents to a small farm outside the city. There in an earthen dam, the remains of James, Andrew, and Michael were found buried. And the story actually has a lot more information behind it. And that's according to some sources, the FBI hired a mafia informant and enforcer of theirs named Gregory Scarpa to help them find the missing workers. According to some sources, Scarpa used illegal connections to find someone in the clan with information about the burial. He then kidnapped the man, took him to an army base, and tortured him until he obtained the information about where the bodies were buried. Scarpa was paid by the FBI, and while the FBI has never confirmed Scarpa's involvement, they also have never denied it. A Mississippi Highway Patrolman named Maynard King may have been present during the interrogation, and he was later named as Mr. X, as his claim was that he got the information about the body location from an anonymous third party. So again, there's there's conspiracy upon conspiracy in this case. There's a lot of stuff that was going on. It was very important for this presidential election year for for the president to make some progress in civil rights. So it doesn't surprise me that once LBJ got Hoover on board with his investigation and Hoover was known to use some not so constitutional, not so legal tactics within the FBI, the, this entire story of, of having a Klan guy kidnapped and tortured until he, he tells the FBI where the bodies are buried, that doesn't surprise me. And then this Mr. X, they... they fought really hard to keep his identity secret and that's because this Mississippi Highway Patrolman was kind of high ranking in the investigation and was working with the FBI so to have him leak this information or obtain this information didn't look as bad as if the FBI came out and said oh by the way we just figured out where these bodies were, especially under the Hoover administration. A lot of people would assume that some less than legal stuff had occurred in order for them to get this this body information. And again, that traces everything all the way back to LBJ at that point. Uh, so it doesn't surprise me that there was some insulation put into place uh, as to how this, this they got the information where the bodies were buried. But regardless of whether or not that entire thing with the mafia enforcer and informant and torture and kidnapping is true or not, eventually what we do know is that this Mr. X is able to point authorities towards the location of, of the missing activist bodies. 
and upon being informed on August 4th of discovery of their loved ones, the families requested an independent autopsy. This request was denied, and a pathologist with Mississippi simply stated the men died from gunshot wounds. The federal government stepped in and was able to obtain the bodies for a second autopsy. While Andrew and Michael had been killed by a single gunshot wound, Andrew was found to have had clay dust in his lungs. This indicated he was likely still alive and breathing when he was buried, and while the gunshot wound would likely have proved to be eventually fatal, he wasn't yet deceased, and thus he was actually buried alive. More disturbing was the autopsy results for James Cheney. While the original autopsy simply stated he had died from gunshot wounds, the independent pathologist was horrified to find that James had suffered several severely broken bones as part of a severe beating. He'd been castrated and shot three times. While the killing of the two white corps workers had been somewhat merciful, James had suffered tremendously before, during, and was likely mutilated after his death. The FBI refused to give up and kept investigating the case during the fall of 1964. As expected, state and local law enforcement refused to investigate the crime, claiming there was no evidence to bring anyone to justice. In 1964, murder was not yet a federal crime. It was still a crime reserved for the state to prosecute, and with the state refusing to investigate, the FBI worried no one would be charged for the triple murder. Federal attorneys decided to go after the suspects for violating the three victims' civil rights. 21 men were charged with the conspiracy, and a federal grand jury indicted 18 of the suspects in January of 1965. But in February, the presiding judge, William Cox, dismissed charges against 15 of the men because they were civilians, and he felt only a sworn law enforcement officer could violate someone's civil rights. The decision was appealed, and in 1966, the Supreme Court ruled that anyone could violate another person's civil rights, and once again, the men would be indicted by a grand jury in 1967. When the trial began in October of 1967, the federal prosecutors knew they had an uphill battle. Judge Cox was known to be a racist and had once referred to black witnesses as chimpanzees. That comment almost got him impeached, but he remained a judge because he lived in the South. The jury was also an all-white jury of seven white men and five white women. All potential black jurors had been denied a chance to serve on the jury because it was said they would be too prejudicial, but one of the white males had been a KKK member in his past. And we have to remember, too, uh, taking a little break here, the American justice system requires unanimous verdicts. So in, in the case of finding somebody guilty, it has to either be unanimous that they're guilty or unanimous that they're, that they're acquitted, that they're innocent, and anything else is a hung jury or a deadlocked jury, which means they're not going to be charged, but it means they could be tried again uh, somewhere down the road. So by getting rid of the black jurors, they've created an easier path to acquittal for several of these guys, because if you can get all 12 of these white people to agree that there's not enough evidence to convict these guys of the crimes, an acquittal means they can never be tried again. Whereas if you put these black jurors on there and even one of them stands firm and says, no, I will not vote to acquit these guys, you're either going to end up with a hung jury or in the case of the the likely situation here is basically this trial is going to be for nothing. So somehow they're able to get this white former KKK member on the on the jury, which 
again, now you've got to convince this guy to find fellow KKK members guilty of a crime. And so, again, the federal prosecutors knew they had an uphill battle. And the defense attorneys for the 18 men felt they were going to get another easy acquittal, and on the first day, they asked a witness whether the victims had been part of a plot to rape white women in Mississippi in the summer of 1964. This drew an immediate reaction from Judge Cox, who declared the question improper and stated he wasn't going to let anyone make a farce of the trial. So this just goes to show how ignorant the people were. They saw these college students and these black activists coming into or or performing uh, their activism within their state as this terrible thing and they had actually convinced people in the state that core was not there to to forward voter rights for black people they were there to come down and rape white women in mississippi Again, it just it speaks to the volume of ignorance and the lack of understanding of, of what was actually going on by many, many different people at this time. However, the judge's reaction to this question changed the tone in the courtroom. The prosecution realized they actually had a chance to see some justice for this terrible crime, and the jury appeared to sense the change in atmosphere, and it was said that they were attentive throughout the trial. The trial was the first the public learned what happened that fateful night in June of 1964. After refusing to let the young men pay their speeding fine and leave, Deputy Price left the men in jail while he went out and told a Baptist minister named Edgar Keelan to rally additional members of the local Ku Klux Klan to form a lynch mob. Once two carloads of men were ready, Killen went to a local funeral home to establish his alibi while Price returned to the jail. He allowed the men to pay their fine and release them. As soon as they got into their vehicle, Price followed them out of town and led them right to the waiting members of the Klan. With the Klan members in place, Price conducted a traffic stop of the vehicle. He walked up to the car and asked the men why they weren't leaving the county like he told them to. They said they were trying to leave, and then the Klan members showed up and made the trio get out of the car and into the police car. Price drove the men to a secluded location and a man named Wayne Roberts told Andrew Goodman to get out of the car. He shot Andrew Goodman and then asked Michael Schwerner to get out of the car and shot him as well. James Cheney, because he was black, was beaten and tortured before being shot three times. Their bodies were loaded back into the core station wagon and driven to the farm where they were buried using a bulldozer. Much of the evidence presented was the result of testimony from James Jordan, who agreed to confess the details of the crime in exchange for a lighter sentence and a $3,500 payment which equates to around $30,000 today. James Jordan was not put on trial for his involvement, and he would later claim he didn't shoot James Cheney, he only acted as a lookout. As a result of his plea deal, Jordan was sentenced to four years in prison. It was also learned in the trial that the murder of Michael Schwerner had been part of a plan by the Klan in Mississippi. He had been targeted for murder by the Imperial Wizard Sam Bowers Jr., who's basically the state leader of the Ku Klux Klan. The white supremacists were upset because a white man was furthering the voting rights of black voters in Mississippi, and as a result, Bowers put out that hit on Michael. Of the men put on trial, seven were found guilty of violating the young man's civil rights. Deputy Price, Horace Barnett, Wayne Roberts, Billy Posey, Jimmy Arledge, James Snowden, and Sam Bowers were all found guilty. 
They appealed several times but lost all their appeals and were put in prison in 1970. But because the crime was a civil rights violation and not an actual murder charge, they only received between 3 to 10 years and no man served more than 7 years in prison. That Baptist minister named Edgar Keelan, who had organized the lynch mob, should have been found guilty, but a female member of the jury refused to find a man of religion guilty of the crime, so his conviction was deadlocked. In 1984, Sam Bowers confessed in a sealed interview that he was delighted that men involved in the crime had walked free. The confession was supposed to be sealed until his death, but a reporter somehow gained access to it and wrote an investigative piece on the case that gained enough traction for a new investigation into the crimes that started in 1999. Because Killen had never been charged with any crime directly related to the murder, he was eligible to be charged, and in 2005, he was put on trial for murder. The jury did not find evidence that he was directly involved in the actual murder, but felt he was culpable enough for a him to be convicted of three manslaughter charges, and as a result, he was sentenced to 60 years in prison. He was given 20 years for each manslaughter charge to be served consecutively. This sentence ensured he would remain in prison until he died, which occurred in 2018. While it is quite clear that the majority of justice was never served for the deaths of the three men so committed to racial equality, their murders did energize the nation and the public outcry to the crimes helped pass the 1964 Civil Rights Act just three, just weeks after their death. The following year, with public outcry still high and the success of the Selma to Montgomery March, the Voting Rights of Act of 1965 was passed. The sacrifices of men and women like James, Andrew, and Michael helped pave the way for a more equal America. While there will always be work that needs to be done, and there are still areas of hate and ignorance, I think progress has been made and we have the brave men and women of the 50s and 60s that risked it all to make the country a better place. And again, before we end this episode, I just think it's important to highlight the level of depravity, ignorance, bigotry, racism, everything that was just prevalent. It was overt. It wasn't even like they tried to hide it in the South and it was the ultimate good old boys club where everybody was in on being able to commit these crimes and being able to get away with them. Even if you got caught, you were going to face a all-white jury in front of a, a white judge with white lawyers. And you're, the chance of families of these black victims of racial violence, the chance these, these families would ever see justice was almost next to nothing. But I think this case, the, the Mississippi burning case, was the the first time that, especially people in the North, really understood what was going on in the South and how corrupt and terrible this, this entire system was. And because of the this crime being so highlighted, and, and, and you can say what you will about the fact that it was only highlighted because it was too upper middle-class white guys from New York that, that were also killed in it. As wrong as that might be, it was the catalyst that was needed to, to motivate people across the country to bring an end to this. So ultimately, this, this crime that was meant to scare slash 
make things more difficult for these core members. This this crime of pure hate was actually the crime that that changed civil rights in the South. So I guess in, in the matters of indirect justice, that's about the best that I can take from this terrible crime is that the efforts that the these evil guys took to try to stop the civil rights movement ultimately was the ultimate backfire completely blew up in their face and they actually helped propel the civil rights movement into the next era but that is it for the case of mississippi burning thank you guys for listening stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com you can also find me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions on facebook and support me via patreon at TrueBlueCrimeProductions. that's it for today guys thanks for listening talk to you later goodbye